0: Times that never were. Lost ideas and tech will never know. A strange, familiar place, far and out of space, takes you back to where you long to go. Into
1: tomorrow. To plan
0: wbus interplanetary radio this is planet tomorrow where the future that never was is alive and well i'm your guide to the galaxy rye dorsey
2: guide to the galaxy i like that one that's good a little less little less hoity-toity than star captain <laughs> you know but still still uh on
0: yeah. theme i'm gonna run the stroke into the ground until it's not funny anymore and right now it's hilarious. So I was gonna
2: say impossible. It hasn't been funny to begin with. <laughs> well, I'm your other host, Zachary Goldberg, and today we're going to talk about the Soviet Union, specifically outer space, as it concerns the USSR and life after the USSR as well. We've got some really cool guests. We've got Fred Sharman, who's the author of a fabulous book called Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space. And we also have a second interview with Sinat Sultanaliva, author of the short story Element 174. I'm like so excited about both of these. I tore into Fred's book and I was fascinated by Say story, and so I can't wait to get into that.
0: Yeah, I'm excited too.
2: I also want to say up front that this episode is by no means an attempt to, like, tell a definitive or, you know, complete history of the Soviet Union in outer space. This is us taking a peek at a few different stories and ideas that we've handpicked from behind the Iron Curtain and beyond to help us gain a little more insight into what kind of a role predictions about space exploration played in these societies that are largely unfamiliar to us.
0: Right. It's an exploration of those ideas, not a complete history of everything. Even though you
2: are a guide to the galaxy, you are not a scholar. Right. <laughs> Neither of us a are guide. scholars. I'm
0: just a guide. Just a guide.
2: But I think it's a really good jumping-off point. It certainly has been for us, and hopefully will lead you to other really interesting stories and tidbits. Um, and I also do want to acknowledge that we recorded, you know, about half of this episode a little while back, before Russia attacked Ukraine. Right. And that war is still ongoing at the time of this episode's release. This episode doesn't directly have anything to do with the war in Ukraine, but of course, there are ties to be made to so much of Soviet history and what's currently going on. So we've put some links in the description to places that seem to us like good places to donate, and our hearts are with the people of Ukraine. I really like this post I saw on Twitter where there's an artist named Simon Stollenhog and he posted some of his artwork. And so there's four different pieces, each in some sort of very desolate environment and each featuring really retro-futuristic looking machinery. The combination of the tech and the landscape and the loneliness, it just gives off such a specific Vibe, right. And so this one user, Paul Haynes at Paul Haynes' photo on Twitter, said that it invokes in them a sort of nostalgia for a past that happened alongside our own. And I really loved that phrasing, a nostalgia for a past that happened alongside our own. And so then Stalinhog, the artist, suggested calling it xenostalgia, <laughs> which I thought was clever. <laughs> But I really loved someone putting words to this feeling because that's totally how I feel when I see science fiction artwork and ruins and things from the Soviet Union, having grown up in the United States. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think that's like tied up into like the reason why we do this show Even if it's not a specific nostalgia we have, it's just interesting to see how a group of people like so far removed from our context think about the future.
2: Yeah. There was a publication in the Soviet Union, and I think Fred makes mention of it in our interview later, that was called, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, something like Technikia Molodeji, Technology for the Youth. And it's so similar to Mm -hmm. Popular Science magazine here in the United States and it's so interesting because you see these retro futuristic designs that are so familiar but also like just right. a little bit alien. It's almost nostalgic but it's different.
0: Right. And I, I think what's fascinating to me like, is what American sci-fi stories got big over there and what Soviet sci-fi stories got big over here. When we talked to Senat and, you know, she was talking about all the different American sci-fi books that she read and how she interpreted them, that was pretty cool.
2: So if someone brought up the Soviet Union as a kid, what came to mind to you? Like, how did you picture the Soviet Union in your mind's eye as a child growing up in America?
0: It might have been, like, first or second grade. Our school, for some reason, didn't want to pay for new maps. <laughs> so all of our world maps still said Soviet Union Oh, my on God. It. What? So I think I wasn't fully aware that the Soviet Union was not a thing when I was uh, <laughs> in kindergarten. I think that was something oh, I had that's to learn in awesome. maybe, like, third or fourth grade. Yeah. <laughs> that's such
2: a sitcom joke. That's such a, like... You know, Abbott Elementary or whatever (laughs) other sitcom that takes place in a school like, oh, our school couldn't pay for funding, so it says, (laughs) and then they pull down the
0: map and it says... (laughs) We got all these maps on discount. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's awesome. What about you?
2: Yeah, I, I feel like as a kid the Soviet Union made me think of either space or Jews. Jews because I'm Jewish and growing up in A pretty big Jewish community. I feel like I've known a lot of people who've had to hide their identities or flee from the Soviet Union or also pre Soviet Russia. Yeah. So my mind always went there. And then space and also like sci fi in general, because there's just so much sci fi that has to do with the Soviet Union. And I feel like my parents showed me a lot of, you know, Cold War era movies that in some way or another had to do with outer space and science fiction.
0: Do you have any specific media that you're picturing when you think about this time period? About what time period? <laughs> the Soviet Union. That's a pretty big time period. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs>
2: um, I don't know. I mean, my parents introduced me to like James Bond. And I mean, some of those are more explicitly Soviet related than others. But yeah, they all in some way are sort of Soviet and space adjacent. I don't know. And then even like films that were made after the cold war, I guess like Apollo 13 and whatever. But then there's also like, I I couldn't tell you the names of them, but you know, I've seen like Soviet semi-propaganda short film that takes place on the moon, you know, filmed in 1960, (laughs) whatever. And like, I wish I knew the names, but I just have these images in my head. Of cosmonauts doing things in ways that were either right. broadcasted on TV in the Soviet Union or were like created with some express purpose, you know, of communicating information. And it's always like almost American looking, except you go, oh, weird. Like their helmet is shaped like a cylinder instead of a sphere.
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe I think about stuff like Solaris, right. Stalker. Those are the movies that like Stalker probably the first. Russian language movie I've ever seen.
2: You know, I, I think a lot of what we're talking about is coming from the era of the space race or after. Right. But I do think it's really interesting, as we learned talking to our first guest, Fred Sharman, that science fiction and science-based predictions have a long history in the Soviet Union that dates back to the first revolution and even before and i found that really fascinating reading his book space forces and tracing how it evolved over time
0: well it sounds to me like you're trying to do a little segue you are correct <laughs> i will do the annoying thing where i acknowledge the segue and say stick around
2: Well, why are you doing it if it's annoying because that's comedy Captain Comedy that should be the next title you give yourself <laughs> at the top of the show.
0: got to write these down. I got so many I got to say. Made it <laughs> to this. So
2: the first time we spoke to Fred Sharman was on an ancestor of this podcast, another show about retrofuturism that we did together in college when we spoke to him about his book Space Settlements. Space Settlements is itself a great book that really gets into the weeds of what it would mean to create a habitat in outer space. But Fred has been up to more great work since then.
0: So we sat down with Fred to discuss his new book, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space, which had a bunch of cool stories about the Soviet Union in space.
3: Fred, it's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk with you all again. Tell us a bit about it who you are and and what you do. I am a teacher here in Morgan State. I teach architecture and urban design in Baltimore. And I also have a small design consultancy that I do art and design stuff around the city. But I'm also a a writer and researcher. And for the past several years, I've been really invested in sort of digging up stories about how past futures that were imagining human life in outer space in different ways are, are actually kind of... They're not so sort of out there. They're really deeply connected with things like the design cultures of architecture, urban design, and other spatial practice disciplines. They're connected to space science and science fiction. You know, I I increasingly in, in sort of researching and writing about these stories in these two books, I've come to regard like the lines between all those disciplines as being basically sort of non-existent because it's all about imagining future spaces you know whether that future is like next week and we're going to build a library across the street or whether that future is a hundred years from now we're going to build a city for a million people in earth orbit
0: and speaking of like imagining futures when you were a kid what did you think the future would be like
3: yeah we're in a very different 21st century than the one that was depicted in popular culture when i was growing up as a kid in the 1980s and what I've come to think of as the Usborne future, and I sort of gloss it that way because in the, in the UK at least, there was this great series of books called the Usborne Books of the Future, and they did one on robots, they did one on future cities, they did one on space travel, and they were really popular. And we had, you know, the equivalents in the States and, and my parents as ex hippies had a lot of these things on their bookshelves. So I just pulled them down, you know, as a kid, and and you, you find out, okay, this is what you know, the, the 21st century is going to be like, we're going to have, you know, solar panels, and bikes and space travel and, you know, cool hovering trains. In, in vacuum sealed tunnels, like now Elon Musk wants to build, or he said he wants to build, that all these sort of utopian ideas, both sort of high technology and, you know, with a little bit of countercultural edge still there from the 1970s, we're going to define what future life was like on Earth, in space, everywhere, that we were going to, you know, build domes in Antarctica, and, and, and live there and farm the oceans. And what I think is really, Interesting is that all those ideas are showing up in different ways today. You know, those those ideas are still out there; they still have currency, but they show up sort of now recaptured by you know market forces, recaptured by capitalism, recaptured by by power. You know, this isn't this isn't the kind of um, economic utopia that we thought we were going to get along with all that hardware, along with all that those cool toys and gadgets. So let's backtrack
2: a, a second. What is your new book, Space Forces, about?
3: So when I when I finished Space Settlements, which was really about this sort of specific 1970s moment, I realized that there was so much more to kind of say. And on the one hand, so much more to sort of be critical about, but also a lot to be still optimistic about and looking at, you know, the story of how humans sort of started to decide, hey, we could go live in space permanently. So I wanted to take a broader approach with with this current book, Space Forces, which is subtitled A Critical History of Life in Outer Space. I wanted to to look at sort of the deep origins of of when this idea first became plausible, which turned out to start back in Russia, pre-revolutionary Russia in the late 19th century. As kind of the the how and the why were starting to come together. You know, rocket science was coming together with like the big grand project of of a human future. And that turned out to influence a lot of things about the Soviet space program after the Russian Revolution. And so starting there, you know, about 150 years or so ago, we find that the other end of that timeline is where we are now, with the new space private industry companies sort of defining the scene broadly and public actors stepping back a little bit. So it's not NASA that, that has the big plans anymore. It is Blue Origin and SpaceX and all these other companies. So between those two points in the timeline, I found sort of five other stories. You know, each of the stories is I think a little different even though they're all related to one another. And what they turn out to reveal is, you know, while people think about how and why we should make new worlds, they're really thinking about like what is a world for in the first place? And that has direct implications to, you know, again, those sort of practical things that I also work on and think about every day. Architecture and urban design is the is the process of sort of being on the ground and making a world. So again, I find, you know, these interconnections to be really fruitful to make.
2: Yeah. And that's something that I, I really love about the book is that it ties together so many of these thematic threads in each of these stories that culminate in the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk of it all, that it feels just so rewarding to go from Werner von Braun to Elon Musk. Turns out there's a lot in common there. Yeah, <laughs> scary thought. You mentioned you start off the book around the early 20th century with the Russian revolutions and you introduce this guy Konstantin Tsiolkovsky mm-hmm. and the concept of, of cosmism. So who is Tsiolkovsky and why did you start here with cosmism?
3: Yeah, I mean, to, to understand Tsiolkovsky, who's a really interesting figure in his own right, you have to sort of go back one generation and look at the individual who was his teacher while he was living in Moscow, a librarian named Nikolai Fedorov. And Fedorov was kind of a reclusive, eccentric scholar. He was into asking these sort of big picture questions. And one of, the, one of his key questions was like, what should science and education and engineering and culture... What should it be all about? What, what is the purpose of, of all this? What is the purpose of, of all these things that seem to work to improve life, to make things better in subsequent generations? Where are we going with all this? And he sort of filtered down his ideas into, into this radically sort of shocking and simple and crazy proposition. What he called the common task for culture and science and engineering should be the eventual resurrection, the bodily resurrection of every human being who ever lived And in order to do that, we'd have to go and travel to other planets because, you know, Earth would get full really quickly if everyone who ever lived was brought back to life and they were granted the opportunity to live forever. So you get this dual sort of conclusion that like, okay, everybody gets to live forever and everybody gets to go to space and go wherever they want, which is like, it's so simple and so crazy that it still is kind of jaw dropping. And, you know, I think that these ideas would be like an interesting historical footnote if, Fedorov hadn't been so influential. You know, Tolstoy was a a person who was reading Fedorov's writings and was interested in his ideas. And so was Tsiolkovsky. Tsiolkovsky, as a a teenager, was given a stipend by his father and sent to Moscow to get an education. But he decided not to go to school. He decided to sort of stock his own laboratory and hang out in the library and teach himself. And this is partly because he was hard of hearing. So he's having a, a lot of trouble in a classroom environment. Didn't want to attend a university. Couldn't couldn't really hack it in that kind of setting. So Fedorov put him on a program of, of kind of self-education. And at the same time, he's doing experiments. He's he's doing experiments that have to do with physics and what we what we now call rocket science. But he was inventing rocket science at the time. Sokovsky ended up being the first person who... Derived what we call the rocket equation, which describes how a rocket, you know, with a with a certain payload mass needs a certain amount of energy to get to orbit, say. But that mass is also changing when you add in the fuel. So you need to create sort of special new math to describe like, OK, as we're burning fuel to get energy to go to space, the rocket itself is getting lighter and lighter the whole time. Um, so, Tsiolkovsky was able to show, he was the first person who was able to show that, yes, chemical rockets were, were a feasible way to get to Earth orbit, to leave the planet. That work influenced, you know, whole subsequent generations of, of rocket science. And Tsiolkovsky himself later became the father, if you like, of the Soviet space program.
0: So, in addition to Tsiolkovsky's non-fiction writing, he also did write a novel, beyond the planet earth. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could lay out some of the predictions and ideas and fantasies that he was playing with in
3: that book. That novel is is a really sort of fruitful place to find, you know, the origins of of so many things. Things like, hey, it's probably going to be cheaper once we're up here and easier to get raw material from the moon and from the asteroids to build more space habitats than it is to just keep launching rockets, right? It uses less energy to go and get stuff from the moon to build your house than it is to launch it on a rocket. He was the first to think about, okay, we need to build, if we're going to live here permanently, we need things like air and food sources. So we're going to create, you know, greenhouses in space and incorporate them into our environments so that they can recycle the air and so that they can keep us fed. The novel itself is, is, is not like that engaging a read. It it has like the worst aspects of early 20th century science fiction, which is just like, <laughs> I, an engineer, have done this thing and I've anticipated what might go wrong. And let me tell you why we won't get squashed when the rocket launches, <laughs> even though we'll have massive acceleration forces, well, we will submerge ourselves in water and we will do this. We will have a breathe do not worry. We'll have a breathing apparatus that allows us to continue to, etc. Et et it's just page right. after page. He's way more <laughs> interested in the technical sort of plausibility than he is in character development, plot, you know, big picture culture stuff, because he's taking all that for granted. You know, of course we want to go live in space because it's it's a fun adventure. It allows us to expand our resource base. It allows us to figure out how to solve problems that we can bring back to Earth. And in Slikovsky's other writing, he goes into more detail about what a sort of future Earth might look like if we import space technology back to the planet. If we can create these artificial environments in space, particularly these these like optimized greenhouse things, then what would be the implications for human life on planet Earth? And well, he says, you know, pushing these things to the ultimate crazy logical conclusion. We could cover the whole planet with greenhouses and create an ideal atmosphere and environment to grow as much food as possible and support hundreds of billions of people on the planet even cover the oceans sure why not and hey you know because since the atmosphere will be more useful inside the greenhouse than outside we'll just pull all the air in and there won't be any air anymore outside the glass roof that covers all of planet earth and that will be a, a way to sort of optimize human existence because he like his teacher Fedorov saw the kind of the the point of engineering and science as a set of processes that, that should work towards making more human experience possible, making more and making more humans. So the best thing the planet Earth could do would be to support hundreds of billions of people because he's taking it as a given that more people is good and that that would if bodily resurrection were to you know be feasible, you know then we could support as many of our ancestors as possible too.
2: I appreciated that in the chapter when you're talking a bit about Tsiolkovsky's didactic writing, that you allude to Jules Verne, because I specifically remember when I first read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in middle school and just being like aghast at the three pages where he's just listing the names of fish. (laughs) (laughs) It was like. Am I reading the right book? Like, do I need to keep going? Or
3: there's sort of this like performance <laughs> of competency that that I think these early writers feel like they need to undertake. Book. They feel a need to demonstrate that, like, oh yes, this is all perfectly plausible and doable given you know current understanding of of science and physics.
2: Actually, speaking of of other writers, also early on in the book, you talk about another Russian writer writing around the time of the first Russian Revolution. Alexander Bogdanov. Hmm. What did Bogdanov write about, and how were his views different or
3: similar to Tsiolkovsky's? You know, I should preface this that these are, you know, these are my own readings of of these things. I'm I'm by no means, you know, a scholar of early 20th century Russian science fiction. Generally, I find stories that allow me to tell stories. You know, and to do that, you know, um, I'm sort of, you know, like you all. I, I want to follow my own sort of weird obsessions. And, and if I get interested in something or get traction on it, it helps helps me make connections between it and other things or between things you know, themselves, then it's useful for me to dig into. So Bogdanov is another figure that I found really useful to sort of help think about what cosmism is and was and its relationship to other big projects. Bogdanov was a revolutionary, literally, you know, like was in revolutionary cells that would coordinate street fighting during this really turbulent time in in Russian history. And he was also a physician. He was also invested in weird ideas about how to live forever. And his particular sort of weird idea was direct blood transfusion. So almost sort of communism taken to the level of bodily fluids. You know, we will redistribute the plasma. And not not just to sort of recover from injury, but to sort of improve general health. So if people shared blood, the theory was that the overall health of a population would, would rise because everybody has just sort of like a, a sort of collective, you know, shared labor effort. Everybody has something to contribute from their immune system via their blood, in Bogdanov's view. And he he wrote science fiction as well because this was part of his project of like how do we how do we transmit complex ideas about the future and about technology to the proletariat to the working class and he saw science fiction as a vehicle to do that so he wrote about his ideas in a, a great book it's it's a it's a lot more fun to read than Solovski's Beyond the Planet Earth Red Star is his book about a trip to Mars he uses Mars to sort of get outside of existing human cultures and human givens and by creating that outside you know he's able to critique what goes on in the status quo which is a nice trick and i think it's essential to the sort of purpose and modes of science fiction we propose something not to say things should be like this in this book but we we propose or we speculate about things in order to say why are things currently the way they are here on earth or in our time when they could be like this in the future. Bogdanov's Mars is a place where collective labor is shared. And this is, you know, in the early 20th century, he's envisioning things like, well, why don't we, you know, have a database, a a sort of massive computer controlled database of everybody's skills and desires, and anything that needs to be done, we can connect a task, like in a factory somewhere, with a person who wants to do that task or, or who is able to do that. So his Mars has this system. If you like, it's a sort of cyber, cyber communism. And they do share blood. They also share blood, of course. They have food delivery apps. You know, they can can (laughs) look on a screen and and see what kind of food they want, and someone will bring it to them. So, you know, I think that what Bogdanov does is to offer... And, you know, I can't make a case for this directly, but I find in, in Bogdanov's writing a kind of critique of the absolutist goals of Russian cosmism as, you know, explicated by Fedorov and, and Solkovsky, a critique of the idea that, that the only desirable thing is just more human life, more repetition of the same, bigger and bigger patches of territory, and deeper and deeper stretches of time. Because in Bogdanov, his Martians, you know, his wiser, older Martians, consider invading Earth, which is a constant, it, it's always there in the background of the so, sort of science fictional imaginations from this period. That I see this sort of post colonial fear that, that someone will do to us what we have done to others, that, right. that someone from outside, since Western culture had dominated the planet with their technology and subjugated, you know, so many other groups of humans and so many other cultures that in the bigger picture of outer space, somebody might turn around and do the same thing to us. And the Martians, you know, they give, it's a hundred year old book, I guess I can't spoil it, but the Martians have this public debate about whether they should invade Earth. And Bogdanov's protagonists convince the Martian governing bodies that, that no, the difference between Earth and Mars, even though Earth was a place where bloody war was happening and all these horrible atrocities that the Martians found appalling were, were taking place every day, even though Earth is this bloody primitive place, that it's valuable because it's different. And I think that's a direct sort of rebuke to the cosmos desire to make everything the same
0: yeah.
3: for all eternity, you know, and throughout all space. So I find this really fascinating kind of dialogue happening in some of this literature,
0: when I'm reading these early twentieth century science fiction books, it's kinda hard for me to like place it within the context sometimes. So do you have a sense of like how
3: like popular these ideas and these books actually were? I think it's a great question and and I can't I, I don't I don't know how to answer it. You know, I have enough trouble even figuring out, you know, how to how to decide if Bogdanov even read, you know, Solkovsky. It is so hard to get ourselves outside of our own context and to, you know, embed ourselves and in the mind of you know a reader in Russia a hundred years ago, so, you know if you have this this figure who's presenting you know science and equations and engineering, and proving, you know the, the plausibility of his work with with models and with experiments, but who's also you know turning around and saying, well I believe every single particle is alive <laughs> and has feelings, <laughs> you know, and that and that every particle what so what does a particle want? Every subatomic particle wants to be obviously since it has feelings wants to be part of a human being because human beings are the things that i observe in the natural world who have the richest experience of their lives you know they feel the most so a particle wants to be a part of a human so therefore in order to make all the particles happy we need to turn the whole earth into a greenhouse to serve a hundred billion people right and do people go okay okay constantine <laughs> sure sure right. yeah keep working on your <laughs> rocket um i don't know it's so it, it's so interesting to think about but these are times when when Many things that were seen as impossible suddenly became possible, like, you know, the end of an empire, which is, you know, what was happening in Russia at the time, a kind of apocalypse, you know, if you like, but also a kind of realization of, you know, what we can also maybe call an essentially science fictional project, which is Marxist Leninist communism. This was the work of people sitting around and speculating about what the future should be like or what would be possible. And that post revolutionary period in Russia was probably a moment where people were looking around going. Well, okay, we did that. What else might we be able to do? So you find things in, in Russian popular culture that persist into the space age, from this period where, where anything you know seemed possible. Why can't we go, you know, farm the oceans and build domes in Antarctica? Why can't we go and live on the moon? A lot of the same things that pop up in the oozborn future in the West, you know, if you like, in in Europe and North America, show up in Russian popular culture and magazines like, I'm going to mangle the uh, pronunciation, but it's like Technica Molodegia, something like that, technology for the youth, which starting in the 1940s, I think, and through the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, was the kind of the Osborn book of the future for Russian popular culture, for Soviet popular culture. That's where you would find science fiction short stories, you'd find speculation about big rotating cities in space. You'd find drawings of robots that might, you know, do agricultural work. You'd find all these things. So I think that even despite, you know, a kind of Stalinist period where the official mode was not to think about things that are too far out and weird where there was repression on speculation about new ideas and new ways of life. Even despite that, these currents persisted in the Russian and Soviet popular culture imaginary. These ideas about new and weird and exciting futures in space and on Earth were still there running under the surface.
2: So let's talk about another Russian idea that you mentioned in the book. And this one, <laughs> I don't even know how to try. Um, V-N-Y-E. Uh, Vol- oh, yeah. Yeah, it's how Vignet. Vignet, okay. Vignette, okay. Vignette, so, you know, Vignet. So what is Vignet, and how does it relate to space exploration?
3: And sort of trying to, to get inside the headspace of Russian popular culture during some of these periods. I, I got a lot out of Alexei Yurchak's book, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation. Yurchak is, uh, I think, a sociologist and a historian too, but he was someone who was interested in writing about what, what it was like to grow up in the, in the seventies in the Soviet union and to participate in this sort of late Soviet culture and to also, you know, becoming of age or, or be an adult in the 1990s when the Soviet union collapsed. He calls it this, and it's right there in the title. Everything was forever until it was no more. He finds this, this kind of, um, This inevitability that people in general responded to the events of the 1990s with this like, ah, yeah, of course, of course, the Soviet Union is going to fall. Of course, the Berlin Wall is coming down. Of course, the West will win, win the Cold War. But that before that, there was this sort of participation in the system, participation in daily life. There weren't riots in the streets, you know, if you like, about the conditions of daily life. Daily life was also accepted with the same kind of inevitability. And Yurchak uses this concept of being vignette as a way into that mindset and he's getting this from he's he's interviewing people and he's talking with people that are part of this generation and he finds this attitude and even this this word cropping up again and again and it signifies a kind of a way of being you know what i call it in my book is is simultaneously deeply embedded in a context but also literally like over it literally outside of it so it's a it's a way of sort of going through daily life that it says yeah you know i'm 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 here participating in this, I'm 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 buying into the system, but also being deeply sort of cynical and critical of it, almost in a kind of um, knee-jerk way, in a way that you're not even aware of. And Yurchak connects being vignet to the writings of other people working in Russian science fiction, like the Strugatsky brothers. And for Yurchak, one of the ultimate sort of Russian pop culture expressions of being vignet was in the figure of the stalker. In the movie of the same name by Andre Tarkovsky, and Stalker is a movie about the Zone, which is this place where alien first contact has been made, and then seemingly the aliens left without ever really doing anything or connecting directly with human culture. But they left behind all these things, which to them were probably just trash and trinkets, but to the humans who discover them, they are you know world changing and life changing. This is what you know we call it broadly in science fiction an outside context problem. So an outside context problem is when you encounter something like superior technology from the Martians as they invade and take over your entire planet, right? There's no gun or nuke or, or any human technology that could stop, you know, a theoretical alien civilization that wanted to colonize planet Earth. It's a problem that's completely outside the context in which we are able to understand things or act on them. And so for your chalk being vignette is a way of dealing with outside context problems. Things like the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's an outside context problem for Soviet society, you know, in the 1990s. And so you need to detach yourself from engagement or emotional investment in what's going on.
0: So in Space Forces, a big theme is like connecting all these 20th century ideas to the current moment we find ourselves in. And I'm wondering if you think there's, like, mapping you can do between, like, the Soviet mode of thinking about space travel and, like, the current modern American, or are they, like, different ideas entirely?
3: Yeah, I, you know, there are a lot of things in new space, you know, in private spaceflight, in the cultures around private spaceflight, and in technology cultures generally, that are these sort of funhouse mirror versions of ideas about Russian cosmism, you know, the the idea that Mars is where the destiny of humanity, you know, gets played out. Mars is a place to think about human futures and, you know, human responses to war and conflict and apocalypses on, on Earth, I think is one current is one place where you find, you know, kind of a distorted version of the way people were thinking about how life in space might be useful for living on Earth. And in other technological regimes, you know, we read about, venture capitalists like Peter Thiel in the U.S. investing in and interested in companies that, hey, promote blood transfusion as a way of prolonging human life. You know, it's a distorted, nightmarish version of the redistribution of the Bodily fluids that Bogdanov visualized. There's a there's definitely an uneven power relationship between you know somebody like Peter Thiel, who's in his fifties, getting blood from you know a person in their twenties. Um, Peter Thiel, who's a billionaire, you know, like basically exploiting someone else's labor. Right. This is a hyper capitalist, not a hyper communist mode, but. The venture capitalists, people who are making decisions about, you know, what companies in the technology realm are viable and worth investing in and what companies aren't, I think are motivated by, you know, things that we might call cosmists, desires to live forever and go to space. That's what powers the imagination of people like Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk.
2: Yeah, I was struck reading the book by whether it's Tsiolkovsky trying to cover the Earth to make it a greenhouse or Musk wanting to build a new civilization on Mars, consistently it seems like a common theme is that none of these people feel that the Earth is good enough and there's just like this disdain for (laughs) what is already provided to us, what we can do with the life that we're given. In a related way, I keep thinking about how You've spoken a lot in the book about how colonialism means more than just displacing the people mm. who are there. I mean, that certainly shows up, you know, in Tsiolkovsky, in you know, talking about impressing Native peoples into making this greenhouse. But even in building orbiting greenhouses or in Bezos wanting to build colonies floating in space, even if there aren't any people already there... You know, I like that you sort of touch on how that still gives into colonialist impulses.
3: Yeah, I found it useful to think through colonialism as an example of what sociologist and anthropologist Lisa Masseri calls a planetary imagination. A planetary imagination is an attitude about what worlds are for and what should be done with them. So colonialism is a very particular kind of planetary imagination based on an implied assumption about showing up somewhere and finding that I can rearrange the pieces of this world in a way that profits me and might be to the detriment of those pieces, but the pieces don't matter because they only matter insofar as they are useful to my benefit. So colonialism isn't just about, you know, showing up in a boat with guns, guns, germs, and steel, you know, and saying, like, we're taking your land away from you. It's about turning, you know, what I think of as these sort of networks of relationships into hierarchies. This is the highest and best, and this is the lowest and worst, and we're going to try to optimize for this and minimize for this. You're taking ground and sorting it into this type of rock that I can do this with, this other type of rock that I can do this other thing with, and who cares what's left of the ground after we're done digging through it. So those same attitudes about what worlds are for will be translated in a colonial project to life in outer space, unless we are aware of them, unless we, unless we foreground other alternatives about how to live both on space and on Earth in a way that, as Bogdanov tells us, it shows us, values difference for its non-utilitarian aspects. Bogdanov's Martians choose not to colonize Earth because Earth is interesting and different than them. They choose not to the humans, you know, to work or annihilate them and take their land and take their mineral resources and turn their fields into farms, because that difference is valuable in its own sake. They choose not to create a hierarchy that places themselves above the humans of Earth consciously. So one of my overall goals is to make explicit these other ways of being that are possible that are not based on hierarchy and exploitation. Which is, which is a fundamentally colonialist planetary imagination. Needless to say,
2: we love the book. We love Space Forces and everybody should read it. I feel like the whole time I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, I got to read that book and I got to read more about this guy. And like, who's this person? And like, so...
3: That's definitely a goal too, to be a pointer to like so many other great resources <laughs> that are out there.
2: And where can people find you if you'd like to be found?
3: I always love to be found. I'm a social media addict on Instagram and Twitter at 765, all spelled out with the letters, not the numbers.
2: Well, thanks so much, Fred. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you all.
0: Hello. Sergei Krikalev, the stranded Russian cosmonaut, has finally come home after spending 10 months in space. The mission to bring him back from the Mir space station set off last week. This morning, Sergei landed safely back on Earth. I told you
2: about Sergei Krikalev, right?
0: Yeah, it was a, it was a bit a bit ago, so a refresh is in order. What do you remember, Pop Quiz? He's a, he's a Soviet spaceman. Soviet Spaceman. Soviet Spaceman, not unlike Lightyear, out in theaters soon.
2: (laughs) I don't think Buzz Lightyear is a Soviet. Sergei Krikalev is known as the last Soviet citizen.
0: He is the last Soviet. (laughs) Coming to
2: summer. He's the last Soviet citizen because he was in outer space when the Soviet Union collapsed. Krikalev's mission began earlier in 1991 when he was 33 years old and launched to the Mir space station from the Soviet Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And the plan was for him to be there for five months. But ultimately, he ended up spending about twice that time there. The Soviet Union collapsed in December 1991. After that, there was just no money to bring him back. You know, and obviously their priorities were elsewhere. And so this poor guy is just like stranded in outer space. And there were other people on his mission with him, but not forever. And eventually they got to go home. Oh, man. (laughs) Occasionally, there would be engineers who would come up to do routine visits and whatever, you know, whatever missions they had from other countries. But nobody wanted to pay to take him home.
0: So it was cheaper to keep him up there than bring him back.
2: Well, the reason they couldn't take him home is because they didn't want to abandon the Mir space station mm. unless somebody paid to replace him like if he left then that was it. And uh, there was nobody on the space station oh, man. anymore. Man,
0: that's that's the like when your boss is like, "Hey, can you do overtime? We got <laughs> nobody here today." In space. <laughs> In space. And I mean, you think about like what that does to
2: you. I mean, astronauts on regular missions have to train for muscle atrophy and the risk of cancer and like all that right. and that's just like amplified you know i read a little anecdote too that when the engineers came up to the space station he requested that they bring honey he wanted something sweet and all they brought him was horseradish and lemon
0: <laughs> oh you can't if you're gonna go to the guy you gotta get him the honey you just gotta <laughs> Can you imagine being the guy that has to tell him, we couldn't get you, honey, but oh, so we got you. <laughs> I just,
2: I, I, I cannot even <laughs> fathom.
0: <laughs> okay, so what happened to him? Was he just stuck there forever?
2: So finally, on March 25th, 1992. 1992. I said he went up there in like spring of 1991. Germany paid to replace him on the space station.
0: I'm interested in the conversation between his replacement and...
2: (laughs) (laughs) He made it back to what was the Soviet Union and was now Russia. And, you know, some things that I saw pointed out were like, he was from the city of Leningrad. But when he came back, there was no such thing as the city of Leningrad. He went back to St. Petersburg.
0: Wow. What was Sergei's mental state when he got home? Was he okay? Was he all good?
2: I think you'd have to ask him. And to tell you the truth, there are lots of people who have done much more thorough reporting on this story than me. And, you know, I would cite one source that I got this from, but really there, there's a whole bunch of great articles out there. One that I thought was particularly good at explaining the full story was in the publication Russia Beyond. It's an article called The Last Soviet Citizen, The Cosmonaut Who Was Left Behind in Space. And it's written by Yekaterina sanel I also looked at the BBC News Report that you heard earlier, which is from the BBC Archive, and you can find it on archive.org. And if you just search Sergei Krikalev, Last Soviet Citizen, you'll find a ton of great articles about this. But the other thing is you can actually hear from him today because he's doing pretty well. He continues to work with the Russian space program and sometimes works with NASA as well. I've heard interviews with him, you know, even on NASA's official podcast. I can't believe he continued to be a cosmonaut. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
0: (laughs) I guess they picked the right guy for the job.
2: If I was forced to podcast, you know, for (laughs) 311 (laughs) days straight, I don't think I would ever do a podcast again. So there's one other thing I want to mention about this mission that I just think is really beautiful and weird and our universe is wild. Because Krikalev spent so much time in outer space, far away from the center of Earth's gravity, time dilation means that it actually made him 0.02 seconds younger than everybody else born. ...at the same time as him.
0: Oh, I don't like thinking
2: about that kind of stuff. That messes with my brain. (laughs) All I know is that... ...Sergei Krikalev is 0.02 seconds younger... ...than everybody else born at the same time as him. And when the Soviet Union collapsed... ...still lived in an alternate future in outer space... ...where the Soviet Union still existed. So to me, I know this is a little corny but not only is he the last Soviet citizen, but he is a permanent resident of Planet Tomorrow.
0: That's corny, but I like it.
2: Even though the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, its influence can still very much be seen in many, many ways across the region and all over the world. And so for this next interview, we're looking to Kyrgyzstan, a former Soviet colony, for a short story called Element 174, which was written by Sinat Soltanoliva and is part of a collection of queer and feminist Central Asian science fiction published in 2018 called Completely Different. We'll post the English translation from the Calvert Journal in the show notes. And it's a really great story that also has a lot of interesting post-Soviet influence.
0: Yeah, this story really caught my eye. If you're a fan of like early to mid 20th century science fiction that spans like an impossible amount of time like you will definitely love this story it's about an ambassador from earth who becomes the first human in centuries to visit the planet omaya with the secret intention of stealing a powerful element its people synthesize known as element 174 Why don't we start by you introduce yourself and what you do and a little bit about yourself.
1: So uh, my name is Sinat and I am um, an aspiring writer of science fiction. And for my day job, I work as a researcher uh, at Human Rights Watch. It's an international human rights defending, monitoring international organization. And I'm also, um, I have an activist background here in Kyrgyzstan.
2: Well, I'm going to stop you, first of all, and say that you are not an aspiring writer. You are a writer. (laughs) We are two people on the other side of the world (laughs) that have read your story. That's more than most of us can say about anything that we've ever written. So you are a writer. Thanks. Let's get that straight. All right, all right. Yeah. So when you were a kid, what did you think the future would look like?
1: Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, the kind of world that I was expecting to see by the time <laughs> of now, <laughs> uh, obviously, it's not happening, um, or at least not anytime soon. But um, no,
0: really, this wasn't this wasn't the plan.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was growing up, I mean, I started reading, I uh, was reading fairy tales, obviously, so I was not expecting fairy tales, but then fairly quickly, I moved over to science fiction. And so, yeah, I was kind of expecting that by the time it's uh, 2020s or 2030s, we're definitely going to be having, you know, regular flights to Mars, to Venus, I don't know, there's going to be a station on Titan, and maybe we'll have already started interstellar travel or whatever. I mean, pff, I was a teenager back then, so, uh, I mean.
2: Did anything come true?
1: Well, the kinds of books that were dystopian,
2: <laughs> I yeah. think those yeah. like,
1: <laughs> they're coming true quite, you know, yeah, quite fast.
0: Switching gears, can you describe Element 174, your story, and give a brief description of what it is?
1: It's a story that was written and was included into this um, edited volume of feminist and queer uh, science fiction that was published here in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. And in this story, we sort of like get to know the story through the eyes of the protagonist, who is this ambassador from birth to the Omei Federation, as I'm calling it. It's like a federation of um, several planets. And I've inhabited this place with all kinds of degenerates as... Generally, (laughs) I think, you know, feminists, queer people and all kinds of weirdos who kind of seceded from Earth um, something like 500 or whatever years back. So it's kind of like an encounter of a person who grew up on this extremely patriarchal version of Earth and who gets to go into this sort of queer future also, the, the interesting thing about the character is, um, I really wanted her to be the guide for people who are not into feminism, activism, into queer stuff. So basically, she was kind of like the stand-in, right? For the people who are like, oh, those queers. I wonder what they do, right. they, they probably do all kinds <laughs> of weird, sinful stuff and whatever. So she was supposed to be the eyes and the ears for these people when they're reading the story and to kind of like, slowly get her to appreciate the place and actually um, I think I'm jumping the topics I'm, I'm, I'm sorry but this is an important part and unfortunately it wasn't really translated into English and that has to do with the language issue because in Russian and as probably in, in many sort of gendered languages this would be more pronounced I think if it was translated into German it would be clear what I was talking about because you know the language itself is gendered right you know the endings of the words it's it's pretty clear whether you're talking about a female or a male, whether a, a certain object is a male or female uh, right. kind of thing, yeah? My character, the protagonist, she she's always using the male endings because that's mm. also, it's, it's a big issue in the Russian-speaking world, especially when you're writing about something, I don't know, journalism, investigative journalism, whatever. So people always get pissed when you're using <laughs> uh, female endings for, um, I don't know, you know, like, journalist, um, for example. Um, so the... The neutral, sort of gender-neutral term for everything is basically male, and once you add a feminist feminizing ending, it kind of like pisses everyone off. So, and it's really weird how a lot of women themselves they also use male basic kind of words. So they'll say, "I'm a poet, not a poetess," or something, right? Because for them, and a lot of the times I would explain it as, mm, "No, it sounds like it's 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 a little lesser than uh, than being a poet than being a journalist." not a journalistka, you know, because that one implies that she's a you know, little female journalist <laughs> or somewhere else, there is a journalist or an ambassador. At some point, the aliens, uh, creatures, they kind of note that she's, when she's talking about herself, she's always referring to herself as a he. It was important for me that people kind of like think about it, that it's just really weird.
0: On the topic of translation since we're on it how involved were you in the translation because I, I imagine like translating a science fiction story is kind of a little difficult because you have all these like specialized terms and all this like technology you're trying to get across so I, I was wondering about that process
1: uh, well it was um actually quite of translated by the new color journal where it was published the translation was published and they were in touch with me so they sent me sort of like the edited version or the version the translated version of the a story, and I was able to make comments to it. But mostly it was it was pretty well done. I thought of doing it myself, but I think it was a good idea that somebody else who was a professional translator did it.
2: I think it's really interesting, too, that you, you chose to write it in Russian because I understand that you speak many languages and that you said it was published in Kyrgyzstan and, and not necessarily in Russia. Was the reason behind that so that you could make a point about the gendered language in Russia at the time? Were there other reasons, too?
1: I think to answer this one, I'm going to have to give a little bit of a context, I guess, because Russian language is sort of this lingua franca for the whole of this post-Soviet space. And there's, you know, all of the 15 15 plus republics of the former Soviet Union, and not just them, and then some other countries which were satellite sort of republics that were somehow aligned to the Soviet Union back then. So Russian was sort of like the English as it is nowadays globally. So it's really fun. I mean, I, I used to really enjoy it a lot when you know you go to Ukraine and you can understand everybody and we have the same sort of, you know, background, have same uh, childhood stories and, you know, even urban legends were pretty much the same. It's weird, you know, it's like this huge territory from Ukraine <laughs> and Moldova all the way to Mongolia and to Kyrgyzstan. Same kind of story. So, you know, little details would be changed, but it's, it was really a kind of a fun thing. And I mean, it still remains. Uh, so, of course, a lot of the people still speak uh, Russian. Depends on which region of the post-Soviet area, I guess, the Caucasus, There is a lot less Russian nowadays in Ukraine, of course, there has been a lot less uh, Russian, but Central Asia specifically has always been more Russian uh, speaking and also very much specifically Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. It is also problematic for me that Russian, unfortunately, is the language of science. It's the language of a lot of the literature, a lot of project work, you know, um, infrastructural, engineering kind of uh, stuff. Everything is in Russian. That, that's a result of policies, I guess, Soviet policies, where all of these things were, again, Russian was the state language uh, for all these republics, right? I think that was the main thing that we wanted for this edited volume to be understood or to be, for it to be read, first of all, not just in Kyrgyzstan, but in the whole of the Russian-speaking world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for it to kind of spark some maybe inter-country kind of discussions, interstate discussions, maybe there would be some, the editors, they established um, sort of like a publishing house called which is translated as radical imagination. And the plan was that we would publish a lot more of these kind of books, but didn't really come to fruition.
2: We're talking so much about the real world writing of the book, and the languages that it's written in. But language sort of plays a really big role within the story too, you know, in that the lingua franca on earth, I think is English and Jenry speaks Russian and the Omayans speak a form of Esperanto. And you sort of have other languages sprinkled throughout for the names of planets and things like that. And so Mm -hmm. how did you decide on who would speak what language and what role does that play in the story?
1: Mm, that's a really cool question, uh, Esperanto. That's uh, going back to the question that we, to your first question, I think, uh, when you were like, what kind of a future I was imagining. I was thinking we would be speaking <laughs> Esperanto. I oh, was wow. like into Esperanto. <laughs> I was like trying to learn it a little bit. Mm, Esperanto, everywhere I'd hear Esperanto. Oh yeah, finally, future is coming in, but. <laughs> Bad Esperanto was such a cool idea. Yeah. Uh, So I gave it to my favorite people (laughs) in the book. Okay, so we don't have it here, but they're gonna have it there, definitely. And then with English uh, being sort of like lingua franca on Earth, I thought that's just sort of the way things are already. And English, I mean, nowadays English is not the most uh, spoken language, I guess, only due to sort of the numbers of the other countries like China and, and, and India. I'm guessing, right? But a lot more people do speak English as a second language as opposed to native, right? So I think that it's just a question of time that English becomes the global sort of language. So that's for that. And then Russian, I thought, you know, so basically the kind of ethnic background of the protagonist, she's from sort of like the Slavic kind of uh, peoples, Uh, so they retain some of the Russian. I remember, actually, I, I don't think I included it there, but when I was brainstorming what is this earth that I'm imagining is, and I was imagining that there would be these sort of like the Russian or like Slavic conglomerate, and then there is these Asian, South Asian kind of conglomerate. And then the other sort of the names of the planets and sort of uh, references to other languages that's mostly Turkic languages and then some languages from Latin America, South America. And for me, this was specifically important because, I mean, first of all, when I was growing up, I, I always found it weird that Russian, speaking writers, you know, because I was, of course, on all of these um, online forums and whatever for aspiring writers and everything. And a lot of the time, the Russian-speaking writers, they would start write stories about, so Jessica and John went <laughs> in Russian. Can you imagine? Jessica пошла из дела It sounds so weird. Like, what is Jessica doing in Russia or in Kyrgyzstan? This just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> So I never like to give my characters these very specifically, I don't know, American or English kind of European-sounding names. Even Russian-sounding names also they just sound weird because I'm coming from a Turkic culture in Central Asia. I'm based here. I was born and grew up here. So uh, that was really important for me. And and generally, um, honestly, I'm in my activism and my academic kind of work nowadays, I am very much focused on decolonial theories and uh, post-colonial theories and kind of like, Rethinking a lot of the stuff basically through this lens, and I think that also translated into the story I guess
0: I'm really a big fan of like giant science fiction stories that like take place over like thousands of years and like being <laughs> able to like condense all that history into like this very specific stories I just love that stuff so I was like wondering if you could like take us through some of your like science fiction influences
1: when when you start uh talking I just recently I, I just immediately immediately went into thinking about my favorite science fiction stories and novels (laughs) and and, and, um, just uh, inspirations, I guess. I mean, the biggest one is um, Isaac Asimov um, and the Foundation series. I mean, that's
2: a big story. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was like, one of the first things I thought of when I read the story. I was like, oh, wow. They, yeah." Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. You're actually the second person was telling me this. That's so cool. Oh.
1: <laughs> actually, there's also Soviet uh, sci-fi, and it's really, really great. Um, I remember one of my first stories that I wrote, like my, my attempts uh, in sci-fi when I was, I don't know, a teenager, was trying to kind of copy the style, or like the ideas from this Soviet writer, Ivan Ivremov. And the book is called Chazbuka. Uh, the Hour of the Bull, I think, is translated. And he's also done another one, the Andromeda Galaxy, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about these intergalactic uh, travels and all the names of his characters were so cool and they were so amazingly, like, amazing. <laughs> and there was equal <laughs> representation of women and men, like there were women pilots and navigators and the men were, you know, xenolinguists, as, as he was called, calling them all, Xenost biologists and stuff like that. Also, the Strugatsky brothers, um, maybe you've heard of them as well. Those are also amazing. I, I read all of their books. And they've co- kind of created this sort of a cycle of stories called midday 21st century, I think, or 22nd century. Yeah, but and sort of um, in this communist future stuff that's happening there. But the problem with their writings is that it's 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 all really exciting stuff, but they never have female characters. They always have this, you know, brave Soviet guys who are doing these amazing things and the females are I mean they they are parsed out throughout the different novels and stuff like that right but they're never the main ca- uh, heroines main characters or anything they're just either a love interest or a passing kind of a character nowadays we have a lot more diverse of course uh, science fiction but back then that's you know that's the only <laughs> males were the main protagonists right so for me it was really important that my stories are always centered around different kinds of non-males basically non-cis gender male experiences
2: and so the non-Soviet stories that you read, so like Foundation or whatever, were you reading those in the original languages that they were written? Were you reading that?
1: In Russian. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. I mean, the science fiction was a huge thing in the Soviet time, I guess. And I'm sounding like I'm this old Soviet lady or whatever, but, you know, <laughs> the books that I was <laughs> <laughs> reading, they were published in the Soviet times. So I would get them either from libraries or from sort of like secondhand or garage sale kind of things. And then we had this sort of a huge series of anthologies of american science fiction writers mostly some probably also maybe some english not so much european oh god yeah that's there's another influence now i remember (laughs) on this story specifically on the character i don't know if you're if you've heard of this writer probably i hope so his name is harry harrison and Maybe he's not such a you know like a super well-known uh, sci-fi writer, but he has this whole series about this intergalactic spy guy, <laughs> and Famous uh, <laughs> Steel Rat. Yeah.
0: I have not heard of that. I need to check that out.
1: Oh my god! I used to love his adventures. They were just so amazing. <laughs> Very misogynistic, <laughs> but oh. I mean, I was, I didn't care about that back then.
2: <laughs> I think Soylent Green is based on one of his books. It looks. Mm, like. Maybe. Wow, oh, yeah, that's oh, cool. Okay. Oh, check him out!
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was translated like crazy. He was—I thought he was one of the most well-known and famous uh, science fiction writers
3: in the United States. But apparently,
1: nobody has read of him or heard of him, actually. But he's got this whole series about this uh, spy, and so I think uh, partially uh, the protagonist—she's she's kind of based on this guy. His name was Jimmy DeGreez. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of crashed on him. It's okay. This is a safe place. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel so ashamed now. What attracts you to science fiction? Like what, what made you like glom onto it? Was it just because it was all around
1: no i don't think so i think it was just about the, the the ability of science fiction to not just let you escape from the reality in which you are in which looks kind of boring and everything <laughs> Sort of like the way science fiction lets you expand your horizons and kind of like get interested and think about well yeah, we don't have it now but oh wow how amazingly well it's written that it sounds so realistic and it's pretty much possible for it to come come true i don't know in in 20 30 years that was my hope i mean now we know that capitalism doesn't really let it happen (laughs) i truly believe that teleportation would be possible if not for the airline (laughs) companies and their (laughs) um you know monopoly and stuff and lobbying (laughs) (laughs) probably not but yeah
2: (laughs) what was going on you know at the time around you that led you to write this story what was going through your head
1: I knew exactly at the time, like from the very beginning it I, that I wanted to, to write a story of this meeting of two cultures, of two very different cultures, but who share the same kind of background and same history and to show how things could be different potentially. And there is this theme that in the Omai Federation, like the feminists and the queer activists and neurodivergent uh, folks and, and everybody, they just kind of like... Oh. To hell with you all, we kind of hate it here, we're just going to go away and we're going to create our own amazing society, which they do. It was at that time that back home in Kyrgyzstan, there was this increased persecution of LGBT activists and and feminism in general, like actually starting from 2017, exactly. There was this series of attacks on events of LGBT organizations and and activists in Kyrgyzstan. So every year, you know, like every year on the 8th of March, which is the International Women's Day or Women's Solidarity Day in Kyrgyzstan, uh, we've been organizing these marches for women's rights ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It has become this very commercialized kind of a day where people just kind of give uh, flowers to women are like yeah please keep on blossoming like these beautiful right. flowers you are the flower of, <laughs> of our office that was normalized everybody was just like yeah it's just it's flowers uh chocolates and i don't know maybe perfume if you're lucky uh, uh so <laughs> and we wanted to kind of to politicize it or to re-politicize it and to bring it back to the roots of this uh, day right to talk about equality and representation uh, and everything like that. Because LGBT rights are not very well respected in Kyrgyzstan and you know it's impossible to organize a, a, a pride mar- uh, parade for example and it just happened that during those um, 8th of March uh, marches the, the political ones, once we started organizing them different kinds of LGBT activists, queer activists and everybody else just came with their flags, so, so we'd have you know the trans flag, we'd have the um, the, the rainbow in general, and different kinds of them, the, the bisexual flag and lesbian flag and everything, it was amazing, uh, but of course this uh, really caused a lot of backlash and a lot of the MPs uh, of the parliament, like, oh, look at these uh, feminists, feminists want everybody to become gay in this country, and so we have to do something, we have to stop it, so, yeah, like, kind of almost state-sanctioned violence and persecution of uh, feminists, specifically, and LGBT activists, so, yeah, those things were kind of happening, uh, and, and we've been thinking about this a lot in the activist sort of uh, and academic circles. Like things took a turn for the worse, uh, sometime in two thousand fourteen or thirteen, exactly when Russian Duma passed this uh, homophobic law, the the homosexual propaganda law, and they started criminalizing it. And following russia a lot of the other post soviet countries started trying to introduce the same thing and we had the same draft law here in Kyrgyzstan. it was so funny because like we were analyzing them the bill right the draft law itself and on some of the pages not on the first three pages but you know it's a, it's a document let's say of uh, 17 pages with, like the justification and everything and then the justification parts there were some pages where it would say in the federation these things are not allowed we're like kyrgyzstan is not a freaking federation it's a republic <laughs> you guys are right. so <laughs>
2: hey. like
1: lazy you don't even <laughs> copy it <Yeah>. the thing <laughs>
2: Incompetent evil. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Like <laughs> I mean elegant evil, okay. We'll give you at least your elegant. But this one is just, Im- just right. completely incompetent. <laughs> right.
2: um,
1: yeah, so these things have been happening and boiling um, ever since since two thousand thirteen. And um, yeah, and it was kind of really influencing my optimism, uh, I would say I guess. And I thought maybe at some point that it's just it just really doesn't make sense to engage with people with the general population, because they're just so zombified by this um, propaganda TV that's anti-West, anti-liberal, anti-LGBT in general.
0: Has your feelings about the story changed in the years since it's been written? Like it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but I think it's like 2017, that was like a different world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I'm I'm just really happy that... (laughs) <laughs> that I didn't use a lot of Russian names, <laughs> I guess. Um, but yeah, otherwise I, I think it's 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 great. I was planning to write maybe like a sequel, like a follow up of things happening on Earth as they arrive. But yeah, just uh, maybe I'll still write it. But I don't know. I'm I'm writing on I'm writing a different story now, and it's in English. This time, so it doesn't need to be translated. (laughs) I don't know. You know, as like you you get it you get excited about this idea and you just have to write it out. And then the other one just kinda like, oh well when it's my turn. When is my turn (laughs) now?
2: Well, please definitely, as soon as you you have it, let us know and we'll be the first to read it. Definitely. (laughs) Is there anywhere that you'd like people to find you? Do you want people to find you on social media?
1: Yeah, if people would like to get in touch, I can be found on Instagram. Facebook as well uh, was my name, Uh, but on Instagram, I've got a handle, it's it's, it's Skirlin, which is the name of this demon, (laughs) (laughs) a high demon, I'll I'll have you know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and it was a result that I got from one of those, you know, tests back in the day when you'd be like, getting all kinds of like, what kind of a demon are you? What kind of a fairy (laughs) are you? (laughs) So I did that and that one, and Skirlin came out. And I was like, he sounds cool.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming by. We'll put all the links down in the show notes, of course. And hope more people will read Element 174, because we really enjoyed it and just really enjoyed talking about
1: it. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. It's really awesome to hear this.
2: That's right. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to Planet Tomorrow.
0: nam 5-star na Apple Podcasts. Yes, do it. Leave a review. Please, 5 stars only. Our theme song was written by Spencer Roblin and performed by Forrest Van Dyke and Kyla Wooten.
2: Our logo was created by Cyan Larson. You can find Spencer, Forrest, Kyla, and Cyan's social media accounts in the show notes. And of course, you can follow us at PodTomorrow on Twitter.
0: Special thanks to Plant Tomorrow fan number one, the original listener, Brian Deshadon, for lending his dulcet tones to our Russian language announcements.
2: Woo, woo, Brian! Additional thanks to Fred Sharman and Sinat Sultanuliva. You can find a link to purchase Fred's book, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space, in the description. That's also where you'll find Sinat's short story, Element 174, from the collection, Completely Different, as well as her social media info.
0: Did you know that you can leave a voicemail on the Planet Tomorrow hotline? Holy
2: shit, no way.
0: <laughs> yes, way. Just Whoa. call 646-854-7584. You can also send us an email to planettomorrow at whalebus.net.
2: That's right. Call the number on your screen, 646-854-7584. Call today. <laughs> and don't forget, you can listen to other great Whale Bus shows at whalebus.net or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening.
2: Initiate whalebus protocol sequence 721.
1: Whalebus. Передача закончилась. До (laughs) свидания.